Hello, everyone, and welcome to Listen Closely with John D.B. I am your host, the aforementioned John, and this is the inaugural, I guess you could say the pilot episode of the podcast. And, um, you know, I've, I've done podcasts before. Most recently was probably about four years ago, and, uh, and the reason why I stopped, well, a couple of reasons. One, uh, no one was really listening, except maybe two or three people regularly. And two, you know, the podcast didn't really have a focus. I was sort of just stream of conscience, whatever was on my mind that day. And uh, in listening to other podcasts that other folks have done, seemed important to have some sort of theme, some sort of focus. And in uh, thinking about things that I can focus on, which there's very few, music seemed to make the most sense to me. And uh, in particular, I thought it would be a wonderful idea to start a podcast series in which, with each episode, I focus on a particular favorite album of mine uh, throughout the course of popular music and really pull it apart and look at why I think it's classic, why I like it, what are some of the things that have made it uh, have good staying power, why are people still listening to it 10, 20, 50 even years later. And that's exactly what we're going to be doing with uh, Listen Closely. We have a list of, well, so far, probably about 25 different albums that I plan to focus on. Let's see how many I get through. And the idea is to have uh, guest co-hosts with me uh, on a fairly regular basis so that you don't have to listen to my voice every week. Although it sounds kind of sultry today, doesn't it? Uh, Probably because I'm a little under the weather. Um, These are interesting times. I think everyone's really finding ways to get creative and pass the time, particularly in the midst of COVID-19. So I thought, why not try a podcast again? And perhaps some people will listen. I'd like to think this is uh, maybe slightly as entertaining as that Tiger King or whatever the hell. Everyone seems to be watching on uh, Netflix. So, you know, everyone has their own set of favorites. Uh, with anything, but particularly with music. <clears throat> and I know that I, as I traverse through my uh, 20 to 30 to 40 favorite albums of all time, I know there's going to be people out there saying, well, you know, you're someone who was born in the late 70s, you came of age in the 90s. How the hell can you not devote an episode to Nirvana Nevermind, uh, Dr. Dre, The Chronic? The answer to that is simple. I just don't want to. Uh, I'm not knocking those albums they just never really made it into my favorites list uh or even close but we will have some significant albums from the 90s um that i will assess in the podcast but tonight i thought with the first podcast it would make most sense to start with a band that is not the least bit obscure that's universally known um And ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stones. And it's interesting because I feel as though a lot of people dismiss the Rolling Stones. 
I've heard people refer to them as overrated. Uh, it's not nearly as good as, as some of the other great supergroups, other famous bands of all time. And I, I find that disheartening. Yes, it's very easy to dismiss the hits because you've heard them too much on classic rock. You know, Satisfaction, Start Me Up, <clears throat> uh, Jumpin' Jack Flash. But I would argue that the Jagger Richards catalog is unparalleled. And when you look at the songs that these guys have created over the course of 50 plus years, and I'm not simply talking about the hits. You know, I listen to the Stones on a daily basis and rarely am I listening to Satisfaction. <clears throat> rarely am I listening to It's Only Rock and Roll. But give me the, the deep cuts, and I would say that these are better than, than most anything that's ever been written. Again, not everyone's going to agree with that. But um, tonight, I thought it best to start with the Rolling Stones and what I consider to be their masterpiece. And they probably have a handful of masterpieces, <clears throat> but I think it's the best, their best work. And probably in my top 10 rock and roll albums of all time. And that would be Sticky Fingers. And this seemed like uh, the appropriate starting point. And uh, one of the reasons being we are coming up on, if you can imagine, the 49th anniversary of Sticky Fingers. It was released in April of 1971. And this really captures the stones at their swaggering wild best in my opinion and um you know the album released as i said in in spring of 71 was recorded throughout 1970 although uh, sister morphine's albums songs was actually recorded in 1969 but the rest of the album recorded in 1970 and <clears throat> ironically it was the first stones album ever to not feature any contributions from Brian Jones, who was one of the original members and passed away in 1969. Another interesting fact is the album had cover work, very famous or infamous cover work, you know, with that zipper, uh, conceived by Andy Warhol. So why do I think this album is so damn good? And, you know, I must think it's good for it to be not only the best Rolling Stones album, but one of the best albums of all time. And the first album that I will feature in this podcast series I said earlier, it's the Stones at their swaggering best. It's the Stones at the, a crossroads, really. You know, they wrote out the 60s. They survived the Beatles. Um, they lasted longer than the Beatles. Hell, they're still together. Um, they went through a lot in the late 60s with Brian Jones passing, with Altamont. And this album is really a snapshot of all of that, I think. You know, one review I read said that there's danger lurking at every corner uh, in, in sticky fing on Sticky Fingers. And I have to agree. You know, there are these incredible melodic moments. In the musicianship is great. Jagger singing is at its best. Or his lyrics are phenomenal. Um, but there is a sense of, of gloom and paranoia that, that hangs over this album. You know, ironically, I talk about how one of the critics mentioned that, but 
as is the case, I think, with, with a lot of albums that went on to become classics, Sticky Fingers didn't necessarily have the warmest critical reception. Um, Rolling Stone magazine, which back then had a lot of credence. Uh, people put a lot of faith into what Rolling Stone had to say about an album, about a band. Uh, John Landau, when he reviewed Sticky Fingers, felt that the album lacked the spirit and spontaneity of the Rolling Stones' previous two albums, and that apart from Moonlight Mile, which closes the album, a little bit, a little bit more about that track later, <clears throat> the album is full of forced attempts at style and control, in which the band sounds disinterested, particularly on formally correct songs, such as Brown Sugar. It's interesting but he would say they sound disinterested. Brown Sugar would go on to become unequivocally one of the Stones' most popular and successful singles. The Chicago Tribune gave it a largely positive review upon its release. Um, and he said it was the Stones at their raunchy best, which I have to agree. But even there, they couldn't give it a fully uh, glowing review. And he said that the album was hardly innovative. But then you get the more contemporary reviewers of the past, I don't know, 20 years or so. Um, a lot of people swear by Colin Larkin's book, The All-Time Top 1,000 Albums, um, where a rock critic, and I think he wrote this in the late 90s, does just that. He writes reviews of what he feels to be the greatest 1,000 albums of all time. Uh, and I think he sums it up best. He says, dirty rock like this has yet to be bettered, and there is still no rival in sight. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is why the Rolling Stones were so damn good. It was groundbreaking. It broke the rules. They were dirty. They were shameless about it. And I think you could say they were often imitated, never duplicated. And I think, I mentioned earlier, Sticky Fingers is that perfect snapshot of this era of the Rolling Stones. And that's why I do think it's their masterpiece. Now, when I dive into these albums, uh, there's a few things I like to look at. Um, and, and one would be, even the greatest of rock albums has their, their weak points, their nadir, their, uh, the track that I would most often skip. And, uh, you know, even when there's an album that I would listen to start to finish, there's always going to be that one out, one song that I could um, do without. And in this case, with Sticky Fingers, it's uh, without a doubt, it's, it's Sister Morphine. Uh, I just feel that the song is such a downer, and I understand that maybe that's the point of it. Jagger and Richards co-wrote it with Marianne Faithful. I just feel that you know it's situated about halfway through the album. I think it kind of breaks the momentum of the album a little bit too much. And it never, never caught on with me, uh, nor do I ever foresee it catching on. Now, this is not to say that's a bad song. I just feel that when you compare it to everything else you've heard on that album, Brown Sugar, Sway, Wild Horses, Bitch, I Got the Blues, Dead Flowers, You Gotta Move, Moonlight Mile, Can't You Hear Me Knocking? I mean, come on. Uh, Sister Morphine just falls short, in my opinion. But also, you know, we can't help but associate people and things we knew 
throughout the years with, with some music and some songs. And I think back to a guy I knew in high school. <clears throat> he was in my homeroom. I never liked this guy at all. I'm not going to name his name. Not because I think he's listening. Uh, because I just don't want to pay him the satisfaction of even naming his name. He was just kind of a weirdo. But he fancied himself quite the musician. And I guess he uh, managed some local pub or whatever, or teeny bopper club, to let him play an acoustic set uh, when we were seniors in high school. And so he went and uh, did a set there one night and recorded it and guilted so many of us into buying the cassette tape of the performance. And uh, it was all original material, <coughs> which uh, wasn't very good. And then um, the one cover song he did was Sister Morphine. And that might have been the first time I ever heard it because I hadn't really, at 17, fully taken a deep dive into the Stones back catalog. Um, you know, I knew the hits at that point. And I put two and two together, realized it was a Stone song, and just immediately disliked it, uh, largely on account of the fact that this guy sang it. But uh, over the years, I've tried to grow to like it. It just doesn't work. Now, I mentioned how I feel that's the Nadir of the album, the track I skip most often. Then there's always the sleeper moment on every great album. And that's the song that maybe initially you didn't uh, warm up to right away. Or it's a song that maybe doesn't get enough attention. Uh, or sometimes you feel that you just like the song more than other times. And there's a couple of these on uh, Sticky Fingers. I can make the argument that Sway is one of those songs. Uh, I can make the argument that uh, I Got the Blues, which is an absolutely beautiful, heart-wrenching, um, soulful ballad, has that. But for me, the one that um, <clears throat> I think takes the cake there for the sleeper moment of the album is Dead Flowers. Uh, again, initially, it almost sounds a little out of place. You know, it's got this real country honk to it. Um, but it's very upbeat. It's incredibly catchy and it's, uh, the lyrics are just very dark. Send me dead flowers to my wedding and I won't forget to put roses on your grave. Uh, apparently a lot of the song is a heroin reference, which I'm sure a lot of the album is. Um, you know, it's interesting because with the Rolling Stones, the, the compositions are credited to Jagger and Richards. But, uh, you know, sometimes you never really know who had a heavier hand in what song. And I always felt that Dead Flowers was a little more uh, Keith Richards, as was Wild Horses. Whereas something like, say, uh, Moonlight Mile, Keith had very little to do with. And um, that was mostly Jagger and actually Mick Taylor, uh, which brings me to the album's best moments. And again, there are <coughs> several. Yeah, this is a start to finish a phenomenal, pretty much perfect album. Um, and I would say that there are times when I look at the best moment and I say, it's probably Can't You Hear Me Knocking. But I would say, for me, Moonlight Mile stands out above the rest as an absolute masterpiece. And I'll tell you why. It is unlike anything the Stones had done up until that point. I mentioned earlier how Chicago Tribune said it was the Stone. The album features the Stones at their raunchy best. 
Moonlight Mile is anything but raunchy. Um, it is this introspective, wistful, sweeping ballad uh, that wouldn't sound out of place in something more contemporary. And the lyrics are achingly beautiful. The melody with the strings is incredible. Legend has it that uh, Keith Richards was a little too under the influence to record that song. And it was really Mick Jagger and Mick Taylor. The guitar virtuosity on that album is all Mick Taylor. And in terms of Stone's ballads, a lot of people will default to Wild Horses, which is on Sticky Fingers, or Angie. Um, But I would argue that Moonlight Mile is the Stones' finest ballad, and it's probably the perfect way to cap off the wild ride that is Sticky Fingers. Um, you know, again, it's, it's an album that's very much debauched. It's gritty, it's sexy, it's, it, it reeks of, of booze, and uh, it's very drug-induced. And then you get to the last five minutes, and there's just this beautiful, haunting ballad about solitude and loneliness. And, um, you know, living life out on the road away from your loved ones. And it's really, it's really a moving moment uh, and an unexpected one. And the first time I listened to the album, it jumped right out to Moonlight Mile. Because uh, initially it almost seems out of place, but it makes complete sense. You know, another true test of how great an album is, is how well it captures and how effective it is at capturing the zeitgeist of the era in which it was released. So again, we we need to think back to this album being released in early 1971, so the very early part of the 70s. And if you want to look at it that way, it, it captures the zeitgeist of the era exceptionally well. I mentioned at the onset of this, this podcast, Stones were coming off of losing one of their founding members, Brian Jones. They were coming off the disaster that was Altamont, which saw the really the the dream of the 1960s come crumbling down. And they were also in the throes of, of drug abuse, and that was going to plague the Stones for the next 10 years at least. And as I also said, it's a snapshot of them moment in the early 1970s were at the top of their game and they're embarking on this incredible journey because they they wrap up the 1960s as one of the biggest bands on par with the Eagles and the 70s will prove to be a wild ride for the Rolling Stones um, they put out an album almost, almost every year in the 1970s and uh, we'll, we'll get to some of those albums in future podcasts but Sticky Fingers makes sense to be the one that kicks off the 1970s for the Rolling Stones. And it makes sense to be such a classic, perfect rock album in the early part of what most consider to be the best decade for rock and roll music. And I think there's a number of factors at play here. But um, you had Jagger and Richards and everyone firing on all cylinders but the secret ingredient to the Stones during this era, from, from 69 to, I think, 74, 
which in my opinion was the best era for the Rolling Stones. Secret weapon was Mick Taylor, who was Brian Jones' successor and Ron Wood's predecessor, and who I think gets too little credit for his work with the Rolling Stones. But his guitar virtuosity on the aforementioned Moonlight Mile and in Can't You Hear Me Knockin', in which they really, uh, it takes on this sort of Carlos Santana type jam, but it's better, in my opinion, than anything Santana was doing. Uh, And I think you can say that so much of that has to do with with Mick Taylor. And then inevitably, with great albums, you always want to think about a moment or two that you've had in your life when you've heard a song or some songs from the album or the whole album, and does it bring back sentimental memory? And, you know, with the Stones, there's just too much to mention. With this album, there's too many to mention. But what I can think about are a couple pop culture moments that happened in the early part of the new millennium when I think people really started to embrace this album again. Um, The first of which would be the opening credit sequence of the 2000 Ted Demi movie, Blow, with Johnny Depp, which is a great, great film. And uh, Can't You Hear Me Knocking plays as you see these uh, workers in Colombia processing cocaine in these factories in the jungle. And it's just a great example of of the, the sound of the music perfectly capturing what the not just what the scene is that you're watching, but what the entire film is going to be about. It's manic. It's sexy. It's uh, it's a little out there. It's a little over the top. And that, that was the movie Blow. Uh, and then another moment, too. Um, Moonlight Mile features prominently in the season finale, I think, of the first half season finale of season six of The Sopranos. And I remember clear as day watching uh, that episode, probably in the sometime in the late spring, early summer of 2006. And it was this beautiful episode, even though we were in late spring or summer. Uh, the episode was filmed in the winter. And uh, it was very dark. And they were disposing of a, of a head of someone who they had murdered. And um, it's a very freezing cold winter night in Moonlight Miles playing. And it really captured the the loneliness and the paranoia that these gangsters uh, live in. And ironically, they would bring the sum back at uh, the tail end of that same episode uh, in a much more heartwarming mo- uh, moment. But it's a moment that's also kind of a, a brief moment in time and a harbinger of the of, of bad things that are to come in the remaining episodes. But really the, the stones have been used so many times in film, television, commercial. But when I think of sticky fingers, uh, I think of those two moments first from blow with can't you hear me knocking second from the Sopranos moonlight mile is sticky fingers, a perfect album. Yes. I'm going to say it is even despite the fact I'm not a huge fan of Sister Morphine. Um, I can deal with it, and even despite the fact that I've heard Brown Sugar and Wild Horses more times than I can count. Um, <clears throat> when it comes to songs like Sway, Bitch, 
Moonlight Mile, of course. Can't you hear me knocking? I got the blues. Yeah, you can't top this. You, no one can top this. So that's it. This was the perfect album to launch this podcast with. And if any of you are listening, I do hope you give Sticky Fingers a listen. Uh, the Stones also did a live version of Sticky Fingers about five years ago at a small theater in LA, the Fonda Theater. They performed Sticky Fingers in its entirety, and it's actually quite good. Um, it's not as bold and brash as the original. Uh, let's face it, these guys were in their early 70s when they did the live version. Uh, so maybe things have changed, but the songs hold up so damn well. This album holds up so damn well. Give it a listen, particularly during these uh, these lonely, quarantine, self-isolating times. I think it's, a, it's an album that you will truly get a lot out of. And uh, that's it for this podcast. And I thank you for joining me. And stay tuned as I, in the coming weeks, will tackle some classic albums by the likes of U2, The Eagles, Super Tramp, Eric Clapton, Roxy Music, Elvis Costello, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, Fleetwood Mac, I mean, go on and on. So many more. Thanks so much. Stay healthy.